Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, German officials are calling Russia's maintenance shutdown of the Nord Stream pipeline technically incomprehensible, among other things. Is this a naked attempt by Vladimir Putin to hamstring the German economy for political advantage? Well, Oral Brown, Professor of International Relations at the University of Toronto, will join us to talk about that. The Prime Minister could be subpoenaed to testify in a class-action residential school reparations case. Dr. Ken Coates, a senior fellow at the Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Institute for the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, has details for us on that. And the Ford government refuses to tell the public how much taxpayer money has been spent in the courts to keep the Premier's mandate letters secret. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked, obviously, about the ongoing implication of the war in Ukraine and, and uh, the implications it's having on some of the, the member nations, of course, in the G7 and others. And, and one that comes to mind right off the bat that's uh, being heavily impacted is Germany, uh, because they still have some reliance on, on Russian oil and, and Russian gas, for that matter. And uh, the Russians apparently are playing games once again. German officials say that Russia's three-day maintenance shutdown of the crucial Nord Stream gas pipeline in Germany is not necessary and they fear the temporary supply freeze could actually continue. Trying to get some uh, context in this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Aura Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. What are the Russians up to here? They are clearly exercising pressure on Germany. Ge Germany has the largest economy in uh, in Europe, uh, Germany has the capacity to provide a great deal of economic help, even military help, to Ukraine. And uh, there's a kind of irony in this because uh, Germany had pressured Canada to agree to return a turbine, a very mm -hmm. large crucial turbine that we were repairing for this pipeline. Uh, there were those who were saying that this would be violating sanctions. And our prime minister said, well, you know, we're not using sanctions against allies. And despite all of this, uh, despite blinking in, in terms of uh, Russian pressure, the Russians are cutting off uh, the supply of uh, energy. And the message that Vladimir Putin is trying to send to the Europeans is that you may have a great many resources militarily, economically, but you have become very dependent on energy, and we will use that to wreak havoc on your economies. Uh, is is this the beginning? I mean, as as you say, there's some concern within the German government right now that, uh, first of all, that this is not necessary. They're just doing this to send a message. Uh, but this could be a, a, an ongoing tactic, couldn't it? Absolutely. And this is why it's so essential to get as much energy onto the market. Uh, we all understand that there's a climate imperative and we have to be very careful about not damaging the environment. But uh, the, these are emergency conditions where Ukraine people are dying on, on the ground because uh, Russia is uh, able to get all the revenues, uh, Russia's oil revenues, for example, a larger this year than they were last year. Uh, and that helps the Russian war machine. So energy uh, is something that allow Russia's, uh, Russia to do a lot of the killing. And uh, the absence of energy has an impact uh, on the economies of our allies. It has an impact on our economy. We know the increase in energy fuel prices here as well. And it is having a devastating effect in terms of food security because uh, food has to be transported, um, uh, often uh, 
some of uh, what is used in agriculture is derived uh, from into uh, the fertilizer and so on uh, uses um, chemicals that are derived partly from uh, energy sources. So um, this is a situation where we have to make sure that there's enough energy on the market uh, while Ukraine sustains its resistance to the Russian invasion. We have to make sure that Russia does not benefit from the fact that uh, China and India are willing to break the sanctions and are happy to buy Russian energy and they'll be buying it in large quantities to uh, replace us. And uh, uh, we can see already that in places like Germany, they're going uh, for coal uh, as an emergency resource. And that is very much more polluting than natural gas. And the Germans who are going to eliminate nuclear power altogether are keeping some of the nuclear reactors going. So we have to very seriously look at an interim energy policy that will sustain our economies and uh, contribute to defeat of this uh, aggression by Russia. But the politics in this is, uh, well, it's it's stark and it's it's clearly obvious, isn't it, Professor? Uh, especially when it comes to uh, turning down the, the, the gas when it comes to their, their exports to Germany. Uh, and again, they're, they're saying, well, we're not up to full speed. And that you're right, they brought up the, the turbine that was uh, being repaired in Montreal, of course. Uh, but they don't want it back now. They're saying it's inferior product or you've done something to it or something. I mean, so even when we were compliant with them, and, and as you say, they, you know, I think there was a lot of political pressure here not to do this, but they went ahead with it anyway. The Russians say, so what? We're still, you know, we're not, we're not going to use it, so we're still shorthand, so there are going to be shortages. I mean, they, they've got this mindset that they, they just want to make life miserable for the Germans in particular here, and it doesn't matter what we do to try to placate them. Vladimir Putin likes to play mind games. Uh, often, because he's the leader, leader of Russia, uh, he is uh, supposed to be a chess player. But in fact, he's playing poker. He bluffs. Uh, he manipulates. And uh, he tested the West. Would we resist? Would we refuse to repair the turbine? We caved in. And now he's using another game to say, well, it's still not good enough. It's a kind of cat and mouse game. It's part of psychological warfare. It's a very dangerous game, and we need to be aware of that, that we are subjected to this uh, kind of pressure. And all of this ought not to have been surprising. The West, and Germany in particular, had allowed uh, ourselves to become dependent on Russian energy on the assumption that there was going to be interdependence where Russia, in exchange for the money that they're getting from us collectively, the West would never use energy as a means of pressure. Well, they uh, used it before versus Ukraine, they use it versus Poland. I don't understand why we thought that we in the West would be immune. It, but, the, but the mind games here, as you say, that Putin playing here, it, it, but you know, they're dealing with lives here too in Germany. I mean, you know, the weather's going to get cold pretty soon. Uh, and the concern here is that, uh, as some experts have looked at, and I think you just alluded to, Professor, uh, the concern here is that this is really just the beginning of these on and off things. Uh, Siemens has weighed in on this. Siemens, of course, uh, were the ones that were doing the repairs and have done, I guess, repairs on these uh, these uh, turbines for quite some time. And uh, they say that they are not aware that any kind of work or any kind of maintenance needed to be done on them. And they're, not, they're not involved in this particular case, but they know the product and they know what, the, what the, it's supposed to be doing. So clearly, that there, there's no mechanical, there's no legitimate reason for this to happen. 
Uh, and the fact that they've refused the turbine kind of indicates that they, they want to still pretend that they don't have the capability to produce this right now. Uh, but they know that that's not the case. Uh, they know that we know that's not the case, though, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. And uh, the way Vladimir Putin views this is that the big lie works. He can tell uh, the Russian people anything he wants. He controls the media and he can manipulate the West. And when he tested us, we failed. That We could have said uh, there are sanctions and we're not returning the turbine. We're not uh, fixing the turbine and uh, Russia will have to do with, with what they have uh, because obviously uh, they have the capacity to pump uh, fuel without that uh, turbine, but we did not want to let Germany down. We uh, wanted to be cooperative uh, with Germany, and this is how uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is very good at manipulating us. And as long as he believes that he can manipulate the West, uh, and as long as he has evidence, even of small successes, that continues to embolden him. And in order to bring this conflict to an end in a way in which Ukraine is preserved as an independent state, as a viable country, we need to make sure, as Boris Johnson said, that not only is the Russian invasion, this illegal aggression in Ukraine defeated, but it is seen to be defeated. And if Vladimir Putin understands that there's an extremely heavy cost to, to be paid, so far, uh, in terms of the psychological warfare, we have not done uh, very, very well. There appears to be progress on the ground, however. Ukraine is fighting back. They are uh, uh, pursuing a, a remarkable resistance that surprised uh, most experts, I would say. Uh, there was not an expectation that Ukraine would still be able to hold back the massive ras uh, Russian forces more than six months after this uh, all-out invasion of the country. Ukraine has used a tactic known as uh, ROC, Resistance Operating Strategy, that was uh, formulated in the United States, which is very creative, which involves uh, both tenacity uh, and resourcefulness. Uh, they have used uh, anything they could and converted that to their advantage in Ukraine, uh, inexpensive drones, loitering munitions, commercial satellites, uh, it has surprised the world, and Ukraine has therefore shown that uh, it is worthy of, of uh, uh, being helped. It is not as in the case of some countries which uh, the West had tried to help where the government was corrupt and the army ran away. Professor, can we connect those dots? Uh, we heard that earlier in, in, in our reporting, of course, about, the, the as you say, the counterattack that the Ukrainians have launched here in the southern areas. Uh, and we're told it's largely because of the final uh, delivery, of course, of a number of the weapons that, uh, that the, the West had promised them. And that, I guess they're using an awful lot of those against the Russians in that particular case. Is this Putin's reaction to that? We know that he wants to avoid... Uh, an all-out draft uh, and uh, to send conscripts into the battle because that would create problems at home. He has said that he is going to increase the active Russian forces by something like 137,000 people. Uh, that gives us uh, an idea uh, of the magnitude of the losses that Russians have, uh, have suffered. Now, in any war, there is something called the fog of battle it's very difficult to discern exactly what is happening. In this particular case, the Ukrainian leadership has been very wise in not raising expectations that they cannot meet. Uh, 
in uh, using silence while they take action on the ground. President Zelensky said we're not going to signal to the enemy exactly what we're doing. But from various reports uh, uh, from Western sources, including the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, uh, we know that the Ukrainians have been advancing in uh, the Kherson Oblast. Uh, Kherson uh, is the largest regional city that the Russians were able to conquer very early on. It's a crucial city. And uh, uh, the Russians during the past six months have been able to build several lines of defense. According to the British uh, Minister of Defense, Ukrainian forces appear to have been able to breach at least the first line of defense. But this is a slow operation because unlike the Russians who are prepared to utterly raise cities and towns to the ground in order to make an advance, Ukrainian forces understand that uh, they are looking at their own people, their own cities, and they cannot just use artillery to level uh, ground uh, and kill people indiscriminately. They are trying to be as cautious as possible. So this is likely to be a slow process. We'll be watching that. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here, Professor. If I could, I, I wanted to get your perspective. Uh, earlier this week, uh, we learned of the uh, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev at age 91, uh, Soviet leader uh, with uh, uh, interesting history, uh, interesting times in which he was the leader too. Uh, I guess the obvious question from your perspective, what will Gorbachev's legacy be? It's very mixed. He has been lionized in the West, and Gorbachev was... Um, an odd individual in the sense that people in the West and in the East uh, had a tendency to project onto him that which they wanted to see. So we in the West and leaders in the West wanted to believe that he was some kind of liberal who wanted to bring democracy to the Soviet Union, uh, who set out to end the Cold War, to uh, bring freedom uh, and uh, rights, uh, uh, recognition of rights in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think this was uh, a, a mistaken assumption uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, and in the case of uh, the Russians, he was viewed as someone who betrayed the Soviet Union, who caved into the West, who allowed for the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. And Vladimir Putin said that this was uh, the greatest uh, geopolitical uh, catastrophe of the 20th century. In reality, uh, uh, Gorbachev was neither of these uh, 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 characteristics or or uh, the person uh, that uh, these two opposing views would hold. He was not a liberal democrat. To the end of his days, he was a Marxist-Leninist. He uh, would repeat that the Leninist revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, which overthrew the provisional government, not the Tsarist government, there was already a social uh, democratic government, that that uh, revolution was uh, justified. He shared with Vladimir Putin uh, the view that the dissolution, the breakup of the Soviet Union was a, a catastrophe. He had opposed that. Uh, he uh, talked about rights as a privilege, not as something that the government uh, recognized. So his view of democracy was very different from uh, our view. But to his credit, uh, when the collapse came in Eastern Europe, uh, he did not use massive military force to hold on to Eastern Europe. 
partly because he understood that this would be uh, something that could lead to war, including nuclear war. He wanted to avoid that. So he deserves credit in that sense. Uh, he had uh, this talent for uh, making a virtue out of necessity. Uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, he opposed the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, and he had very harsh views on Ukraine. In 2014, for example, he said that Vladimir Putin was right in annexing Crimea. He was banned by the Ukrainian government from, from visiting Ukraine because of such, uh, such uh, statements. So he uh, was a hawk in some ways, uh, but uh, he was nonetheless a major historical figure. And I think that controversy about what he exactly did, what his intentions were, that will uh, that will continue. I would suggest, and I've written about this uh, long ago, that he was someone who did not really understand his own system. He did not understand that Marxism-Leninism, uh, the Soviet system, was an integrated system. And when he tried to reform it, that would not work because we just, just fall apart. He thought he could have it both ways. He could have a kind of gentle communist system uh, but not uh, a Western-style democracy. That he could have people exercise some freedom, but that they would not use it to criticize him. So um, we have to take all of that into account. It's uh, interesting. It kind of goes back to the old series. You know, if you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Uh, interesting legacy, interesting man. Uh, the funeral, by the way, we're told it'll be in Moscow on uh, Saturday. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to get you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, residential school uh, situation uh, continues, and uh, as we anticipated, there are going to be lawsuits, and uh, there's the talk about reparations. Uh, there is going to be a court case coming up in just uh, actually less than two weeks now. And uh, it seems as if uh, the prime minister could face a subpoena to testify at a residential school reparations trial. Uh, Dr. Ken Coates is going to join us right now to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Coates is the Canada Research Chair with the Jackson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. Also a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Let's, uh, let's talk about what is happening here and, and what some of the Aboriginal leaders, Indigenous leaders would like to see. Is, is it unprecedented to try, to try to subpoena, well, in this case, the Prime Minister and, and the, the First Nations Minister? Well, there have been efforts to get uh, uh, politicians, including the Prime Minister, to, to, uh, to uh, speak in court in the past. Um, you'll notice that the rock-throwing incident from a year or so ago, uh, the lawyer for the accused is threatening to subpoena the Prime Minister for that as well, and to, uh, to ask him to come and be held to account. It happens very, very, very rarely. Um, and in fact, the courts often sort of say, you know, this is uh, trivial, or it's non it's not appropriate, and they usually don't let it happen. Um, in this case, it's kind of hard to imagine that the Prime Minister will be able to escape it, um, because in fact, at issue here is the question of what the government knows, what the government knew for a long period of time, um, and what, what information the government of Canada suppressed. So, so going to the top in this particular case does make a lot of sense. 
Yeah, the official reply from Justice Canada here is, uh, well, you've seen it, I'm sure, but for our listeners, uh, Canada's position is that such subpoenas cannot be granted without leave and that such leave should not be provided in these circumstances. Uh, basically saying this has nothing to do with the Prime Minister, which uh, <laughs> seems a little odd, doesn't it, Doctor? Well, it does, actually. And, and, and what that means is what they mean by leave is that you actually have to ask the person's permission to be subpoenaed, which is kind of a backwards way of going about it. Um, it's interesting as well that the that the minister's office, the, the Minister of, of uh, Indigenous Services Canada, um, uh, very quickly sent a note out saying, actually, we haven't asked Justice Canada to, 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 to act on this yet. And the prime minister's office, when it was asked, said, please refer to the minister's statement. So there's a bit of bouncing back and forth, a bit of sort of legal ping pong going on within the, within the government of Canada um, as they wrestle with this. This is the situation where, where the prime minister, who has probably ignored a lot of the advice from Justice Canada over the years, um, all of his apologies, uh, it's been one of the greatest frustrations in the process of him dealing with Indigenous issues that the governments were enjoined from or prevented from sort of apologizing and, and, and talking about what happened in the past because they were afraid about lawsuits. Well, now this is coming back around because you have many, many comments, including comments at the United Nations, where our prime minister has spoken about genocide and a bunch of things like that. Um, and now if, if I was the the, the lawyers for the for the First Nations who are taking this really important case to uh, in, into the into the legal system, um, of course I would have these things brought into record, and I would have the Prime Minister try to have the Prime Minister come in and say, "Well, sir, you said all these things, but you know what are you doing about it?" And remember too that this issue is much more complicated than other ones because it's actually being brought by the First Nations, not by individuals. So there is individual compensation already for residential schools. We've we've been through that already with the Harper government, but this is actually talking about the, the longitudinal, long-term, multi-generational uh, crisis that this is, the residential schools caused in First Nations communities. So, so this is a broader topic. Um, it's reparations at the kind of same level as reparations for slavery in the United States, which remains a really hot issue uh, in, in that country. Um, and it's, it's highly problematic. It's, uh, you know, I can imagine the courts wrestling for years with this one, trying to figure out what responsibility, how much money, uh, who does the money owed to, how does it get dealt with, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, hold on to your hats on this one. We'll be around this one for a long time. Well, especially as you say, because you're, you're talking about culpability here, and uh, and I I know in the assertion here that, that for the subpoena they're suggesting that the prime minister has said that the whole purpose of residential schools was to assimilate, and and Minister Miller I guess has made similar comments. Uh, were those opinions or were they fact based? Uh, because well, the, the official the, I guess response from the government is that, that yeah okay you know there was, there was well here's what they say. Uh, there was no single residential school policy, and any impacts on the cultures and languages were not as a result of any unlawful acts or omissions of Canada or its employees or agents. Uh, so, in other words, they're they're basically saying, "Look, at, we didn't do anything wrong here." Well, that's that's where that's why you have courts, um, yeah. because if you look at the, the second part of that thing, talking about uh, about unlawful acts, is a is really an interesting one. Uh, it may well be there were no unlawful acts in the sense that the government had the authority. For example, to send all children to to, to school. Um, in fact, we have compulsory education in Canada. In um, with First Nations, they exercise their legal right to to impose certain rules and regulations. You also have the complexity that there were many First Nations people who did not know what was going to happen to their children, who voluntarily sent their kids to, to residential school. And the government will certainly argue that that the system was not designed to hurt people. 
but individuals hurt people. And therefore, that's why the compensation was individual in nature. And we've already spent several billion dollars on, on that one. But, but the, the broader question here, the idea that residential schools were not designed to assimilate um, is very fact-based. Um, nobody, nobody doubts that anymore. That's, that is not a, a, a matter of argumentation. Um, in fact, the government was very crystal clear from the 1880s all the way through until the 1960s that the goal was actually to sort of work uh, out, out the sort of the savage in quotation marks, the heathen in quotation marks, out of the First Nations people and bring them toward civilization. Now, that was a, a clear objective. Um, if, the court, if the government of Canada argues that, in the legal proceedings, they're going to have a whole raft of historians. They're going to have thousands of pages of documentation that basically disprove that. Um, and in fact, governments, you know, governments and the, ma and the management of residential schools, uh, the principals and whatever, wrestled with the, the obvious and severe impact right from the early days. As soon as they started offering these schools, they started realizing, boy, this, this doesn't work the way we thought it was going to work. You know, so th there's, there's, there's mountains of evidence on that particular side. Um, the issue then is sort of, well, what's a government responsible for? You know, I, I mean, how far back in history do you hold governments responsible? First Nations say, we're living with the consequences. Why shouldn't somebody be held responsible? You know, uh, and when you've got a prime minister who has, who has made a, a, a career out of apologizing, who has spoken about this many, many, many times and done it in a very thoughtful and heartful, in a heartfelt way, um, he doesn't hold back on what he believes. Um, now, uh, he's our the, the, the prime minister of the country, and so it follows logically that he'll be held accountable for those statements. The question is, is whether or not his statements about guilt and culpability actually apply to people in the 1910s, and the 1920s, the 1950s. So even after 70 years of running residential schools, the government of Canada in the 1950s and 60s expanded them dramatically. You know, so, so there's, 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 a, there's a lot more complexity here. Um, and it's not going to be an easy uh, court decision. Um, it's not going to be an easy set of argumentation. Um, and, but I, I think the prime minister could be in a very uncomfortable situation should he be actually forced to testify. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, again, to my point, was he opining? or Because as, as you say, I don't know if they can go back in the records, uh, doctor, and say, and show me where it says assimilate here in, in the stated goal of these things. If, I, I doubt very much that it does. But I guess one of the arguments of, against that is, look, at, if, if they're basically eradicating their culture and forcing them to, to follow their religion and their mores and their social values, it may not be assimilation by name, but it certainly is by intent. Oh, and there's no question around that. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation on residential schools, and the objective was absolutely clear. Uh, the idea was is that Indigenous peoples living traditional ways would not fit into an evolving uh, industrial Canada. And you had to create a new work ethic, you had to create a new approach to lifestyles, you had to change the way they, they lived and moved, get them to be sedentary, working on farms rather than hunting and fishing and trapping. This is not a debatable point in any real and systematic way. Were they trying to eradicate indigenous cultures? Absolutely. Uh, were they trying to sort of suppress indigenous languages? Um, I went to high school in the Yukon in the 1960s, um, and I went to high school with kids who were, who were strapped in their, in their residential schools in the 1960s for speaking their language. Um, if they spoke the language, they were strapped. Now, the question here is, those schools were run perhaps by the Anglican Church, perhaps by the Catholic Church. The question is, does that, did that instruction come from the government of Canada? 
There's no question the schools did this. There's no question the government of Canada funded the schools. There's no question the government of Canada wanted the schools to, and bring in quotation marks here again, improve Aboriginal people and improve their life chances. Um, so the question is one of legal culpability for the actions that destroyed the language, the actions that destroyed the cultural values. There's also no question that the residential schools, but not the residential schools alone, uh, had that kind of an impact. You know, so there's there's other forces at play uh, where, again, if I was the government of Canada, I would be saying, hey, listen, there's there's 15 things going on that are affecting Indigenous people. Uh, mass population, immigration, uh, major economic change, uh, disease, uh, the, the arrival of many people from different cultures and languages, uh, public school education. I could go a long, long list of other things that were having a major, major negative impact on Indigenous peoples. And so their argument will probably be, well, how can you pick this one thing? Yes, residential schools were disruptive, but so were these other things as well. So you're basically trying to come to terms with, with a, sort of a, a whole history of the mistreatment of Indigenous peoples with catastrophic consequences on their cultures and languages and their well-being. Um, and and I, I'm one of these ones who thinks, you know, the court is there to force Canada to do what it, what it should do, to force Canadians to come to terms with its past. Um, I'm not sure a court decision will provide the kind of uh, resolution that we all, all need. There's other ways you can get to that same point. Uh, which we'll have to pick up another time. We're just about out of time, and I'd love to get your perspective on that. Doctor, always great to get you on the show. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time today. You're more than welcome. Bye now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the provincial government, who have been in the news for a whole lot of reasons uh, over the last couple of days. The uh, the very controversial bill about long-term care facilities and health care. But there's a possible court case that's coming up here, too. And and this goes all the way back to a, a process of, of our electoral system. Uh, when somebody gets elected as prime minister or premier and they appoint their cabinet, right? We're all familiar with that. Uh, one of the things that happens then is uh, that cabinet minister will get a, what's called a mandate letter from their boss, the premier or the prime minister. And basically, it's it's their marching orders. Here's what you're supposed to do with this ministry. And invariably, it happens all the time, and invariably, those are released to the public, and there's comments off, etc. cetera. Uh, the Ford government doesn't want to do that. And uh, they are refusing to say how many taxpayer-funded dollars and how many hours and lawyers they are using to fight this in court, because that's your money and mine that they're doing it with. And uh, it's it's raised the ire of an awful lot of people, and I think understandably so. I want to bring uh, James Turk into the conversation. James is the director for the Center for Freedom Expression, uh, the creative school at the Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, James, great to have you on on a very timely and I think a very important issue. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. My pleasure, Bill. Nice to be with you today. What is going on here? I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's the law that they have to make these letters public, but it's been a tradition, and it's, in many people's minds, no big deal. It's really a, a, an expression of what their mandate was, and why are they being so secretive about it, first of all? Well, that, that is the key question, Bill. Um, this goes back to 2018, after the Ford government was first elected, and uh, the media made a request for a copy of the mandate letters. Now, most governments want to release the mandate letter so the public sees what its priorities are. I mean, it's had a throne speech where it's talked about it, and then to see concretely what different ministers are being told are priorities for their ministry. So to everyone's surprise, the office of the premier refused to release the letter, citing a, a provision in, in the access to information legislation that pr protects what are called cabinet secrets. 
Um, and so the, the media was surprised by this, went to the privacy commissioner in Ontario, who the privacy commissioner himself wrote an order, which he has the authority to do, directing the government to release it. The government wouldn't take uh, wouldn't take that position, uh, wouldn't accept that. So uh, filed for judicial review in the Ontario Divisional Court. The court ruled that the government had to release these letters. Uh, so the Ontario government then appealed it to the Ontario Court of Appeal. They lost there. Now they've appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be hearing the case in this coming year. So it, it's they're absolutely determined not to release this. Now, the content of the letters at this point are, is irrelevant because, you know, this is go back to 2018. What it, yeah. What's really at issue, Bill, and, and what should concern all of us is it's a government that says, look, the public doesn't really have a right to know as much as the law says they do. We're not just not going to let them know uh, things that we don't want to let them know. And um, you mentioned, uh, so then there was a request just recently uh, for, well, how much has the government spent on all this whole string of court cases? You know, the privacy commissioner, the judicial review, the court of appeal, and now the Supreme Court. What's this costing? And the government said, we're not going to tell you. We won't release that. So the media again went to the privacy commissioner. The privacy commissioner has ordered them to release the information. This isn't solicitor client privilege. They're not asking the content of their discussion with lawyers. They're just asking, how much have you spent? And now the Ontario government is uh, seeking judicial review again of this matter at the in the divisional court. It's unbelievable. And I as I was going through this and watching the coverage on this uh, over the last couple of days, I, I got the sense. I said, "Wait a minute! I've seen this show before," uh, and it reminds me very much, James, of of uh, when the Ford government first took office and their fight with the federal government about the carbon tax, the imposition of the carbon tax, and and they were a little more open about that. I mean, they said right in the budget, they were setting $30 million aside for that fight. Now, I don't know if they used every penny of it, but that's a lot of money to, to go through all this. And they lost, of course, you know, as, as they have with this particular case too. So I don't know if it's once bitten, twice shy or whatever the case might be. Uh, but what that does show us uh, is that these guys don't have any problem at all spending as much money as they feel like uh, for their principal ideas. And, and, you know, and if it's taxpayer money, so be it. They don't seem to care about that. And, and now they don't want to tell us what that, that, that bill is. Well, and, you know, uh, Bill, I think it is a big problem. They don't want to tell us how much money is. But there's an even bigger problem here. A, democ a democracy is about the public having an ongoing conversation about what they want, what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. Um, and in order to be able to have that and to know and to be able to vote uh, intelligently, they need information about what the government is doing. And that's why we have access to information laws in this country. This government says, well, no, we don't want as much transparency. We want to put a shield up so the public, there are just things the public doesn't have a right to know. And they're asserting this aggressively in the face of being told they have to release it by the privacy commissioner, by the courts. And they're saying no, and they're fighting it to the... Uh, to the end. Now, in terms of the mandate letters, the Supreme Court will be the final. They can't go further. And if they're ordered by the Supreme Court, then they will have to release it. But it shows a mentality here, a disrespect for the public, a notion that we can keep secrets from the public. Uh, and that really undermines democracy. Well, and, and as you say, it's, it's a matter of, of freedom of information and being able to access this sort of stuff. But this, I guess this is just kind of adding to the frustration that, that the government has done here from time to time uh, by 
simply saying this is our interpretation of the law, and that's that's all all there is to it. You know, the attorney general's office, as you mentioned, James, said this is this is client privilege. When this, you know, the government is the client, and and the, you, the lawyers are not allowed to release that information. It's our money. The the, well, federal, the government's not paying for this. It, we are paying for this. But it's not only our money, but it's also the law says they have to release it. Yeah. Uh, the law does allow them to protect solicitor client privilege. I mean, there is a provision for solicitor client privilege, but that has to do with the conversation between the client and the lawyer. And, the, you know, the logic behind that is when, when you're getting a lawyer, uh, your lawyer has to know everything about you. And so it protects from release what you say to your lawyer. But how much your lawyer, how much the government is spending on lawyers, it has nothing to do with privilege. It's not about the content of their conversations with their lawyers. It's how much they're spending on them. And to say the public doesn't have a right to know that is outrageous. Um, well, and the privacy commissioner, as you mentioned, has already ruled on this and said, no, that doesn't stand. It's it's not the way right. it is. As he, she explained it just the way you did. And the government just says, well, we don't accept that. That's right. So now the court, you know, and with the mandate letters, the privacy commissioner told them that the divisional court told them to release it. The court of appeal told them to release it. And they're now fighting their last stand at the Supreme Court. Uh, they'll just go to any length to try to protect their right uh, to not release things to the public. It's really worrisome because how do you have a good democracy if governments won't release information about what they're doing, what they're spending? When did we get to this point where, where governments are just cavalierly saying, I know what the law says, but that I don't want to do that? Well, unfortunately, we've been at this point off and on for a very long time. Uh, parties, when they're in opposition, think that open government, transparency, letting the public know is a wonderful thing. But then strangely, when they come to power and form the government, they think, well, maybe secrecy isn't so bad. Maybe not divulging things to the public is, is a good idea. Uh, and so they try to interpret the law uh, in such a way that they can withhold things from the public. But as, as you mentioned, I, I was reading the piece on CBC website, about, and you were quoted a couple of times in that. Uh, if, if we're simply going to stand back and say, well, yeah, you know, I guess that's maybe they're right. I mean, they're the experts. If it's, it's client privilege. We don't have to do anything. Confidences don't have to be received. Like you say, they can throw that defense up against anything now. And you, I think you described it as a, as a political black hole that they can just shove everything into and just say, you know, we're not telling you. That's all there is to it. Yes, expecting wonder. that, well, we'll just accept that and walk away. And I don't think we're ready to accept that. That's right. Well, within the uh, both the Federal and Provincial Access to Information Acts, there's something called uh, an exclusion for cabinet confidences or cabinet secrecy. Um, and it's important in a democratic structure uh, for the cabinet to be able to have free, uh, free brainstorming discussions about what, what they want uh, the government to do. And, you know, if records of their throwing around ideas and batting around proposals were recorded, they'd be much more reluctant to be open. So it protects the right of a cabinet to have those discussions. And that makes sense to me. Uh, but what, what this government is doing and other governments have tried to do, and the legislation is written badly on this, there's this exemption for cabinet confidences or cabinet secrecy that governments try to extend. So that's what uh, Premier Ford is using for the mandate letter saying, well, this is part, this has to do with my discussion with cabinet ministers and therefore 
uh, is protected by cabinet secrecy. Well, that's that's an abuse of the language, and and the courts have told them that, and the privacy commissioners told them that. They're still fighting it, but they it, that cabinet secrecy is like a big black hole. They their position is anything that comes to cabinet or might come to cabinet. Uh, can be withheld from the public, when in fact, all that should be withheld are the discussions leading up to a decision, what cabinet decides should be released, uh, things that are just background to those discussions should be released. But this government is trying to treat it like a black hole. And as you know, with a black hole, anything that gets anywhere close to a black hole gets sucked into it. And that's what this government is trying to do. Well, especially, as you say, because these letters, it's basically the policy the government's going to follow. And don't we have a right to know that? I mean, uh, yeah, we get a throne speech, but I mean, okay, we all know that that stuff is done in, in, in generalities. And, you know, we want specifics. Okay, how is this ministry going to handle this? Uh, you know, how's the public works ministry going to handle these two highways? I mean, the details are in those letters, and uh, we're not supposed to see those according to the government. That's right. Well, I mean, you're right. What's in the letters is... Uh, the premier in the case of Ontario telling a minister, well, we talked about all these things. These are the five things that are real priorities for you um, this coming year. So it's the way the public gets to know what the government is really planning to do. As I, you know, and as you said in your, in your opening, it's been the tradition for some years that governments in Ontario and nationally release their mandate letters. Most premiers, most uh, prime ministers, want the public to know what its priorities are they campaigned on things now they're saying now we're going to do them and here's what we're making priorities so it's it's very strange i think it's probably less about the content of the mandate letters and rather this is a real attempt by the ford government to change the interpretation of the law so that the public has less right to know all sorts of things and, and you're true. I mean, I, I know people are going to say they, they are picking on the Ford government again. It, it's it's any government. I mean, we went through this whole process with the McGuinty government, too. And, the, you know, they were being very secretive about uh, the contracts they were signing for alternative fuels and where that money was going, et cetera, and, the, and those plans. Uh, and it, it took a lot of work back in those days to get that information, uh, the stuff they didn't get in the shredder before the, you know, we got there. But anyway, it's there. And it's, it's, it's basically, as you said, it's a basic tenet of our democracy, isn't it? That we, the people, have a right to know what the government's intentions are. It is a basic tenet, and it's a requirement. I mean, how in the world can we exercise our democratic rights if we don't know what governments are doing, if they hide things from us? Uh, and it isn't just the Ford government. And that's why we need really strong access to information legislation, which we don't have in Canada. We have so-so access to information legislation. And, uh, you know, the federal government with liberals in opposition promised that they were really for transparent, open government. But all they've been willing to do is make really cosmetic changes to the federal legislation. So it's a it, the, the value of this case, the mandate letters case, and now this uh, challenge to even disclosing how much they're spending, it brings attention to how flawed our legislation is and how we really need to amend it to require governments to be open with the public. Okay, but how do we how do we remedy a problem? Because you've been following this this theory that for a long time now, James, uh, because it's happening at every level of government too. Municipal, provincial, federal governments have done this many times in the past, and and they can just kick it down the road every time these requests come in, these freedom of information requests come in. But how can we rely on the people who may be the uh, the the party that are doing this to actually pass the laws that are going to make it impossible for them to do? Well, uh, that is the dilemma, isn't it? Um, 
the only way to do that, and the only, it's the fact the only way you get governments to pass any law that people want is, is for there to be enough public interest and awareness that they feel they have no choice but to do it. Um, so if, it's, if they perceive that the public's really not concerned about the issue, then they're not going to do anything. It's not until, they, until the public is angry enough about something or concerned about it that uh, governments uh, are motivated to introduce legislation that otherwise they don't like particularly. Uh, and that's, you know, the fact that we're able to have this conversation today is, is in part because of the stubbornness of the Ontario government. It, it helps bring this issue to the attention of the public. And we have to do more of that if we're ever going to get changes. Well, it's interesting. I know we're almost out of time here, but uh, there's, a, there's a quote here in the article I was reading here from the ex-executive uh, director, uh, Greg Harrington. He worked for the premier's office and uh, said, the intention is to keep these letters to ourselves as long as possible. That kind of hints to me, James, as if they kind of know they're going to lose this eventually, but we're going to take it all the way to the top, no matter what it costs, just on principle. Well, this is one of the tactics that governments use when they don't want to disclose anything. They, they know they're going to lose eventually. Uh, but if they drag it through the courts long enough, it becomes irrelevant. In other words, yeah. at this point, what's actually in those 2018 mandate letters is irrelevant. I mean, there, there have been elections since then. There have been new mandate letters. Um, so this is old news by the time it comes out. And but, you know you know what's going to happen here. Even when the, the Supreme Court rules on this and says, all right, you have to hand them over, they'll say, okay, here are the 2018 letters. Uh, but then we say, okay, we want the ones from 2022 now. You're going to have to start this whole process all over again. That's right. And there is a danger, of course, uh, that the court may agree with them. The Supreme Court may agree yeah. with them, in which case then the public is in real trouble because it means that the, the Ford government's limited notion of what the public has a right to know will be upheld by the Supreme Court. That's always a danger. I have a, one of my best friends who's a very senior lawyer says, well, when you go into court and you have a slam dunk case, you have a 50-50 chance of winning. Uh, you never know what courts are going to do. So there's there's a danger in that sense as well. There is too, yeah. James, we've got to finish up right now, but we'll still certainly follow this and hopefully we'll talk again down the road. Thanks for this today. Thank you for talking with me, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.